The coating durability test puts excess through a cycle of 10,000 strums. Through the lens of a microscope, it is clear that excess retains its composition better than other coated strings. Testing complete. Together again. I'm John Bolger with Premier Guitar, and I'm with Vince Gill in his studio in Nashville. Vince. Hey, man. Hey, great. You, buddy. Thanks so much for uh, for letting us over today. Well, you got all the way to the V's before you found somebody <laughs> come be on your show, I guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah, we we struggled all the way back, and I'm I'm so excited about this new record that you and Paul Franklin are doing. Yeah, we we. Uh, decided you know we love so much of the old stuff and the record we did 10 years ago was bakersfield which you spoke highly of and um this record is all ray price music and uh it's uh the music of ray price the cherokee cowboys uh the title of the record is sweet memories we tried to we tried to you know go find a bunch of songs of rays that were not the the obvious choices yeah. a, lot of, a lot of times when people do tribute record or th those kinds of records they'll they'll all kind of all glom onto the same song, sure. you know, the biggest and the brightest, as they probably should, you know. But we, Ray had such a cool catalog of, of really different stuff that I found some things that I had no idea he'd ever recorded. Sweet Memories was one of them. I never knew he'd done a version huh. of that. and So it was a deep dive for both of us to go down that rabbit hole and find a bunch of songs. There was a song uh, called Weary Blues on this record. It's an old Hank Williams song. That was one of the, I think it was the first record Ray ever made, was the recording of Weary wow. Blues. And so we, we did a deep dive and found some cool stuff. And and then, you know, who showed up as being the songwriters of a lot of those songs were, were pretty cool, too. Guys like Mickey Newberry and Hank Cochran and Willie, Willie Nelson. And uh, it was it was staggering. Bobby Bear wrote one of the songs, Mel Tillis, oh. uh, Marty Robbins. And so it was really cool who showed up that I didn't know who wrote the songs. You know, right. I just, We'd go through these songs. We like this one. We like that one. This would be good. And obviously, the <clears throat> the whole point of picking the songs was something that would really suit Paul and the steel guitar. It was really the point of the record. Is these records we've made that as as I sing, it's fun to sing the songs. I don't. I'm not a real big fan of instrumental records that much, and so I like hearing the stories of the songs. And but they really do come more from a a musician's perspective than maybe a singer's perspective in that. Uh, the real point on some of some of these songs is, like I said, to really feature the way I play guitar and the way Paul plays the steel, and and we'd get to play solos on some of these songs that would never have solos. They might just have a quick turnaround, and then the singer sings again. So we had the the freedom to to play a little bit more, and it's it's a, it's a blast. It's a really neat record. Yeah, great. I I can't wait to hear it. You know, and, and it's I uh, I love the the. The relationship that you two have and the way you play off each other and i think before like look at us when you came mm -hmm. out with look at us steel guitar wasn't really happening they'd gotten away from like that traditional crying thing and it was like a 
it was like country didn't want to be country. And when you brought that out, it changed it all. Yeah, you know, it's always kind of run from itself. Yeah. At times, you yeah. know, and, and it didn't want to be what everybody perceived it to be sometimes. And I've always, I've loved what it was in its most authentic self yeah. the most. Right. Way right. more so than the all the offshoots that it's, it's taken over the last hundred years of recorded country music. But, um, you know, Paul also played... Um, on my breakthrough record, When I Call Your Name. Oh, that was right. Paul that played the steel guitar oh. solo on that. And there's a funny story. He hates it when I tell it, but it's funny. <laughs> but, you know, like, like you said, the steel was not a really predominant in instrument yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s. And so we'd, we'd cut the song and play the song, and Paul played a solo, and it was very, you know, just kind of straight ahead. And, you know, and in his defense, he was playing like what was really wanted of the steel guitar in that stretch sure. of time and uh so, so he played a solo and, and and i called him back i said man i called him back i said will you will you come play that solo again on that waltz uh, and he goes well i like what i played i said well i, I did too but i said i just want to make the instrument cry like i love <laughs> yeah. hearing it cry i yeah. want it to do what it used to do right and he wasn't happy with me you know and <laughs> he came in and begrudgingly and, and was kind enough you know, to come in and, and replay, and and then the song, you know, blew up and and uh, and did what it did, and and he pulled me aside later on. And he said, "I need to really say thanks for asking me to replay that solo because it's it's an iconic solo, you know." Yeah. Oh. And that's what I'm drawn to. I've always I've always loved the steel guitar the most in country music. It's the it's the instrument that is the most definitive of the music. Right. And I've always been drawn to it. I had one for a while. I wasn't very good, but man, I had an ear for it and I loved it. And to me, the, the steel is, is the one instrument that really uh, is the closest to uh, sounding like the human voice. Yeah. And so that, I think that's why I'm so drawn to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and you had uh, John Huey out on your, in, in your road band. Yeah, for, in my road band. For... I, was, I was shocked that he would come and mess around with a knucklehead kid like me, but <laughs> I remember when I called him, that was a huge, like I said, I'm a steel guitar junkie and I knew all the guys. And yeah. um, First record, I, one of the first records I ever made, Buddy Emmons played on when I was 18 years old. Wow. And it was such a life-changing moment for me. It made me fall in love deeply with the instrument, you know, and, and uh, so I knew of John from all of his years of playing on all the great Conway Twitty records. And so I'd had this big hit and I knew he wasn't playing with Conway anymore. So I called him up and cold called him. I got his number out of the union book. And I said, Mr. Huey, I said, I don't think you know who I am, but I'm a young artist and just had a big hit record. And I, I was kind of wondering what you're up to these days. And he said, well, I said, I, I'm just sitting down to my last bowl of ice cream. <laughs> I, I said, you mean there's more than one a night? And he goes, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> so well, you're my kind of guy, you know. I said, I really meant more professionally <laughs> than what you, what you had on the, the plate tonight. But And talked him into coming out and playing. And, and it was the greatest thing ever because we revered him. And we oh, treated yeah. him like the, the king that he was. And and he loved it. You know, he was he was shocked that we didn't have uniforms. And he was shocked that he could sit anywhere he wanted on the bus and do what, you know, it was like no rules. And right. Not not old school at all in that way. And And I was, you know, really fortunate to to have him play with me for about 15 years, I think. And uh, and then Paul has kindly stepped in and, and played with me for the last 10 years or so. And it's been two of my favorites of all time. Oh, that's great. A lucky man. In between being an eagle and everything else yeah. here. <laughs> that's a uh, pretty good little band you got there. <laughs> took me 60 years to get a good gig. <laughs> what I tell everybody. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I remember uh, catching you at the Time Jumpers when when John Huey was still there, and you do you did uh, go rest high on the mountain like an up swingy version that was so cool and impromptu. <laughs> I think we did because somebody had just died <laughs> that was famous for playing shuffles and playing. Oh, really? Yeah, I sang I sang go rest high as a shuffle yeah. at Buddy Harmon's funeral, and everybody loved it. Yeah, it was a it was, was a the, it was a loose tribute to Buddy. Yeah, that was you know, there's cool. no telling. I mean, <laughs> I have screwed it up many times in different ways. But you know, the truth is, is a really fine song. You can play it any way you want. Right, right. It'll work. You know? It's a great song. Yeah. Okay. Well, I 
Uh, I, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent, but I will. Fan. I will talk. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about this guitar. We're we are set. We're surrounded by probably the most iconic electric guitars you could ever find. But man, this acoustic collection is just well. I've I've been a lifelong dreamer of being able to acquire old instruments. You know, I there's a guitar over there that I bought when I was 18 years old. I was just starting and I'd left home and I had saved about fifteen, eighteen hundred bucks uh for my it was my college fund, it was my everything fund, everything I'd saved from all my gigs and stuff and moved away from home and I found that guitar over there and I bought it, traded the guitar I had and, and gave the sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars, whatever I had, and I was dead broke. I had not any money at all. But my rent was fifteen dollars a month in this house in Louisville. <laughs> and uh the, the 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 gig paid a couple hundred bucks a week when we worked and I said hell I'll be all right I need cereal I'll do all right and and so I've had that guitar my whole life you know and it's been it, it's been the one thing that that I I wanted I don't have boats I don't have a lot of cars I don't have a lot of those kinds of toys and things like that I just like old guitars and and the cool thing about it so many of these guitars have the neatest stories you know this guitar. Right here is a 1936 D18. Uh, a guy named Jim, I can't pronounce his last name properly. It's B-A-C-H-O, Bacho, I think, or Baco. And his father was a, a troubadour guitar player who played in the Northeast, played barn dances and stuff. And and he found out that I loved old instruments and stuff. And, and he, he tracked us down and said, hey, I have an old guitar. I wonder if you'd be interested in it. And I said, well, sure. I was playing in Pennsylvania up where he lives. And. And um, after the show, I was playing on it, and it was, it was in dire need of some repair and things like that. And and I said, well, what do you want to do with it? And he said, well, I just want you to have it. And I said, well, this is worth a sizable amount of money, and I'd be willing to pay you what, what it's worth. He said, I don't want any money. He said, I want you to have it because you love old guitars, and it would be a dream of mine, you know, to have you play it and have it. And and so one night I, I got it fixed up, and I took it, and I played it on the Opry. And Jim actually saw it on saw it on TV. He called me up. He said, "Did you play my dad's guitar on the Opry?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> so all a lot of these guitars have those kinds of cool stories. One of these broadcasters back here, um, because I bought it, the guy got to go buy his father's family farm back oh, that he had lost. God, that's and, great. And, and things like that. And, and so yeah, people can look at this and scoff and go, "Oh yeah, great. Yeah, you got way too many guitars or whatever." But you know, what's neat is they're all different. They all sound different. They all play different. They, uh, if you were a painter, would you only want to paint with one one color? Right. You know? And so right. I, I think they all have a musical life. They're surrounded in here, and they get used in the studio. The guys will come in here and play on records. They'll come over and thump on the guitar. Can I play this? I go, yeah. You know, so they all have a good life. That's great. Well, let's yeah. hear about this, well, this uh, is, Sunburst. Yeah, an old D18, 1939, I bought from George Gruen. Wow. My lifelong friend. I met George when I was 18, and I've been buying guitar from him ever since. And it's really rare to find a, a Sunburst right. in a Martin. You know, they just didn't do that very often. And I don't know, I don't know why they didn't. You know, but this is a great old guitar, and, and uh, I played a lot. And nothing sounds like them. Yeah, perfect. Now, what what strings do you usually run on? on it depends. You know, I, I started using these Diodarios. Uh, they're called uh, X and an S. I don't know what it stands for. Yeah. But I've never really been a coated string fan yeah. of any kind. But for some reason, I like these. Huh. I use them a good bit. And they have a, 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 a light set of those has just the tiniest bit more tension. Than a regular set of of lights, and the same with the mediums. And so I've been uh, uh, certain guitars. I think want a light gauge string on it. Some sure. guitars want a medium gauge string. When I was playing bluegrass, you couldn't play light strings because you played so hard. Right. You know. So I don't I don't do as much of that. But just you know, a bluegrass guitar with a medium pick, it doesn't work. But you get a thicker pick, and all of a sudden. Get a lot more body out of the guitar, and when you're doing a session or something in here, you're just trying to play rhythm. 
you don't want that big thick. It's, you know, overpowering. I feel like the whole point of of recording and finding something is there's this arc of from here to here and you're just supposed to fill a spot. Right. And not every spot has to be filled with the biggest, loudest, baddest, thickest, whatever sure. sound. It just has to fill the spot. And so that's how I choose everything. You know, if I want to if I want to run this down a step, I'll put mediums on it, tune it down a step and and it'll handle it. You know, I've got these guitars and all different kinds of tunings and and string gauges and stuff just depending on what what suits it, you know. Yeah. Another thing I don't I, I don't I I think that it's interesting how how much different a guitar sounds with the meat of your fingers versus a pick. A pick is very pointed, you know. Yeah. And I always use the rounded edge of a pick. I don't use there's a mate there's a huge difference in the sound. That's the rounded edge. And then that's the pointed edge. A tremendous amount of difference. Yeah. You can play faster, a little cleaner and it's a little smoother and sweeter sounding. But then you get you wanna play play bluegrass, you wanna hit it a lot harder and pick is thicker, the pick will take it. And and tortoiseshell, all that stuff. We got all that stuff, and but the meat of your fingers sometimes is is the sweetest of all. If you're doing a track and you don't want it to sound pointed, yeah. Mark Knopfler is the one I first saw playing a lot of electric guitar with the meat of his fingers, and it's a, just a much sweeter sound versus. Clicky, it's pointed, and the other the, the string gets to bloom and do a completely different thing. It's all nerdy stuff, but yeah, I, I, hey, you, you, you got the right audience for that. If you're watching, <laughs> yeah. you're, you know you're a nerd, yeah. just like me. Yeah, embrace it. God, that's great. But they're so different, you know. A, a, a D18 is made of mahogany. A D28 is made out of rosewood, and a rosewood guitar will sound drastically different than a. Um, let's see if I can get up here and grab one without banging it into something. <laughs> yeah. With this, I got. I'm gonna use it on a record soon, and I've got it tuned down a whole step. Wow. So much warmer that guitar wow. sounds. That's a 28? That's a D28. Or and, with uh, a herringbone. And a sunburst, really rare. Wow. See, that's rosewood. And it's just a warmer, sweeter sound than, than mahogany. And, and what year is this? 1935. Wow. wow. But it's big and round and a beautiful Ooh, sound. Notes. So no truster on any of these. Do, you, do they? Is it a lot of adjustment? Is it? I mean, do they? They stay. You know, they're ninety years old almost, yeah. and they're hanging in there pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I like their chances for another ninety. You yeah. Know? But I don't. You know, I'm not. I don't. I don't know enough about how they did all that stuff in the day, and um, you know, just whatever they did was pretty spot on. The thirties, the era of thirties Martins. Is pretty untouchable. Sure, you know. Yeah, it's not amazing. It is ninety-year-old technology mm -hmm. and not, not never been surpassed. Mm -mm. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I think a lot of people believe that it's because this wood was really, really old when it was yeah. harvested and made guitars out of. Sure. And there's no more old wood. No. Yeah. Yeah. There just isn't. Just ring and ring and ring. Feel like Nigel. <laughs> Listen to it, it's still sustaining. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, let's, uh, let's look at a few more of these. Okay. This is an old 30s 0018. Once again, mahogany and a shade top. Oh, Rare again. But wow. A beautiful tone. And in here, you know, the truth is, you only need to get a guitar this far into a microphone. Sure. It doesn't have to be a giant guitar, you know, to sound beautiful. Right. That's got all the bottom end you'd ever need. Yeah. 
beautiful. I went and grabbed this. This is, to me, the, the greatest Gibson acoustic stretch that they ever made. It's called an advanced jumbo. They call them AJs. Made in 37 and 38, I think. Wow. But this is rare in that Gibson made guitars out of rosewood. I think some of that was because Martin had come up with the Dreadnought guitar in 33 and 34 and a, a warmer, bigger sounding, and Gibson was generally a mahogany guitar, you know, or maple. But a good bit different than J35s or J45s. Right. These are kind of the, the best of the best in the Gibson collectability. They only made them for a couple of years. Nobody understands why yeah. they made such a brilliant guitar. That's interesting because they really they leaned into the J45. Something I never knew is all the models of Gibsons were the price of the instruments. Really? I never knew that. I feel like an idiot that I didn't know that. But so your J45 was was forty five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> An ES125 was $125, $335 was $335. It made total sense. Yeah. You know? Those days are gone. Great <laughs> so. <laughs> this is kind of the best of both. It's the best of what Martin did and the best of what Gibson did, all in one guitar. And Boy. They're really something. It's really got its own personality. It does. So, I mean, okay, going all, all the way back, you, you were in Poco when you were a kid, and, and then that ran into your solo career, and, you know, it took over the world there, and, and then Time Jumpers and the Eagles and everything else. Yeah, you know, it, it was actually, I know you mentioned Poco because Paul mentioned Rusty Young, and yeah. Rusty was the steel guitar player in Poco, and Rusty played in my band back in the 80s. We were really good friends. But I was in a band called Pure Prairie. League. Pure Prairie, League, that was it, was it. It was a P. It was close. Yeah, yeah. I got the, I got the <laughs> right on top ride. of it. Pure Prairie. League. That's I, right. Let me you love know, you tonight. It, it was. Yeah. Yeah, that was. That was. Yeah, you were a kid. I was young. I was really young. But I, I had played in several bluegrass iterations of bands, uh, four or five years prior to that. And uh, one of the bands I was in was with Ricky Skaggs when we were teenagers. And. Uh, God, isn't that crazy? I moved out to California to play with a fiddle player named Byron Burline, who was one of the best ever lived. And he passed away a couple of years back. And he gave me a big, a big job out there in California and took me out there and changed my life in a big uh, way. Uh, I got great. to be around all these really amazing musicians that played. You know, I ran into Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, and all these really fine, fine, fine players. Yeah. Changed my life dramatically. But Pure, Pure Prairie League came along, I think, in 78. And I was 21 years old, yeah. and all of a sudden I was fronting a, a pretty successful band. Yeah, yeah they were a huge band. We had a big hit, and I was on American Bandstand with Dick Clark and Rock, Rock, Rock what's it called? Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Sure, I think that's what it was called. And all these, all these talk shows. John Davidson had a show, and Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas, and we were doing all those TV shows, and it was pretty fun. Yeah. They were good days, and then, <laughs> but I. I had always, you know, the reason I quit is uh, my wife at the time, Janice, was, was about to have uh, our first child, Jenny. And that band toured about 250 to 300 days a year. Wow. And I said, I really don't want to be on the road that much with a new baby coming, so I quit. And started kind of pointing myself towards a solo career of some sort. And then I, I liked, I always liked being a sideman in a band, being a guitar player, a harmony singer, and... I started playing with Rodney Crowell and Roseanne Cash in their bands, and uh, that was that was a pretty pretty neat stretch for me because that band was was so good that they had playing with them guys like Larry London and Emery Gordy and Hank DeVito and Richard Bennett and Albert Lee, and I was around some of the the very best musicians in the world. So to me, it was a a giant step forward in the yeah. musicianship. Not take anything away from the Pure Prairie League guys, but they weren't that caliber of musician. Sure. You know, and so I got to grow, I got to get better and play with some really great people and that helped kind of get my solo career started in 83. Got a record deal and struggled for years and years and years, you know, trying to trying to crack the code and have a hit and I didn't. And then lo and behold, when I call your name, I got Paul Franklin to play a great steel solo on it and they liked me. 
change the world. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. And during that whole Odyssey, pick up a lot of great guitars. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of crazy. I had a T-shirt one time that said "Love One Woman, Many Vintage Guitars." I think, <laughs> I think Amy got me that T-shirt. <laughs> that's right. Well. Vince, I can't thank you enough for uh, having us here today. And, and it was really a great kind of educational thing to hear these instruments back to back like that. Yeah. You know, I watch all the, I watch all your shows and I love them. And Paul and I did one a few years back and I could have, you know, shown you my pedal, pedal board and half of the stuff on the pedal board I never even used. <laughs> right. you know, with, with the Eagles, I've, I'm, I'm playing such a unique role for me as a guitar player. I don't play a lot of solos, play two or three, maybe four a night is all, and and with my band and my gig, I'm playing them all, all yeah. night long, and and so it's a different role, and I I find that I like a certain pedal for one song. If I'm going to play a Les Paul, I want that that pedal just for that back pickup sound and this and that, so I'll have eight different boxes that I'll use on eight different songs, Yeah. Know? and I'm not trying to find one guitar, one rig, one amp, one all that stuff to to make everything, I think it just, as you saw today, every instrument has a different voice. Right. You know, and a different way that it, it can be used. And that's all I'm ever trying to do is use the right the right instrument for the right song. Right, right. Well, congrats on the new album. Can't Thanks. wait to hear it. Y'all check it out. Till next time. Peace. Tune your B-strings. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're with Paul Franklin. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, well, I'm a huge fan. I mean, you are the you are the gold standard of pedal steel. <laughs> well, maybe aluminum. <laughs> They're all made out of aluminum. <laughs> oh, that's but, good. Which brings up an interesting point. You're playing your Franklin steel. Yeah. Built by your father. That's true. That's an amazing story because you were just a kid, right? Yeah, yeah, I was eight years old when I started, and I got my which I was thrilled to death I, I, out of a Fender brochure. <laughs> and uh, I saw this pedal steel and I got a Fender 400, eight string pedal steel. And uh, I didn't know how they should be tuned. They were, you know, as it turned out, it was set up backwards. So, so <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> and then we went to see, I think it was either Conway or, or uh, Ernest Tubb, but there was a bar about, called the Town and Country Bar uh, near where we lived and they brought in the Opry Stars almost every week. Now, so, is this outside of Chicago? No, this is in Detroit. Oh, Detroit, okay. And and anyway, so my dad walked over to him and, and the guy, would you check out my son's steel? And he looked at it and, and the pedals were wrong because it was tuned to A and then you hit the pedals and it went to E. So it's just opposite of the way everybody did. <laughs> and they told my dad, they said, you got to get this kid off his guitar right away. <laughs> and so anyway, that's prompted his, uh, there was a two year wait for a Showbud or an M in steel. So that prompted the the whole thing of him building a guitar. So wow, that is a yeah, that's yeah. a dedicated father. Well, yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> My uncle had a body shop, so he had all the necessary tools that made it a little bit easier yeah. than if he was there with a hacksaw and, right. <laughs> and a file. And then the whole thing, and you you began recording as a kid, right? And then yeah, he, doing some sessions and he joined. Uh, you know, he heard there was a the the band that Buddy Emmons got started with was Casey Clark and the Lazy Ranch Boys. They had a television show, and Dad heard somehow that you had to be in the union. Of course, he was an auto worker, so you know it made sense to join your kid in the union. So anyway, I did it. Well, it turned out that I was the only steel guitar player in Detroit with all the Motown stuff going on sure. that was in the union. So when um, Steel became uh, an exploratory instrument, like with Dylan and and different ones that uh, would hire steel. I got the calls, not because I was good, just because I was the only <laughs> guy they could find, you know. But I, I did a lot of things with P Funk and uh, uh, McKinley Jackson, which was Marvin Gaye's musical director. And and uh, anyway, I, I recorded on this uh, song by Gallery. It's so nice to be with you. And uh, yeah, and I love, but the thing is, is I love Nashville so much that none of that is great as it, as I look back, it's really cool now. Yeah. But uh, I was on, you know, my mind was into Buck Owens. Sure. And seeing these Grand Ole Opry stars, you know, a mile from my house. And, and so I just, I couldn't wait. I just walked away and, 
you know, probably had four more months of work there. <laughs> right. And the rest is history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. And, uh, and you all just have a, you have a new record coming out. On the, yes. And that Bakersfield, I can't wait to hear it because the Bakersfield album is, is one of my favorite albums of the past 10 years. It's so great. Oh, thank you. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, decided, uh, uh, that we would do an, another one. Obviously it was so much fun to do that. Uh, that and then uh, we chose there everybody's very uh as vince will tell you uh very connected to us both vince and i played on ray price's last album wow and so we we had that and but as we started eddie stubbs helped us find songs and kept on playing us and vince would go give me something more obscure or whatever and and so um something we hadn't heard and so we kept on finding these great songs that next thing you know we had probably 60, 70 songs to choose from. <laughs> and there's no way we could split it half and half like we did with sure. uh, Buck and Merle. So we just cut, you know, songs and then took the rake and, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but it was so much fun. That music is so great. And, and uh, the neat thing is that uh, it's unexplored in today's generation. Totally, I hope it brings shuffles back. Yeah, you know? I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, because it's, yeah, I mean, it's that, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it, because it used to be just, just you couldn't you, you couldn't get away from it and yeah. now you, it's hard to find a, a young drummer that can play like a yeah. real shuffle like that yeah that's a hard thing because they don't well in that era they didn't have uh sound you know uh for you just showed up at a gig your amps and then the drums carried from the you know right. whatever got in the front mics and sure. that was it uh but but um uh yeah but now they they try to get. I think everything just is built upon hitting them harder. And, yeah, right. And those guys back then, they're just you know, Such they had a, a finesse. Yeah, it's right. great. Well, let's talk a little bit about about your setup right now, right here. Uh, this, as you were saying before we rolled the camera, this is kind of where you start, and it yeah. sort of builds from there. So let's let's hear. It. Okay. So so um, my theory, uh, which is always I learned, I got it from Pete Drake, <laughs> and uh, he was my mentor in the studio, and he played on Lay Lady Lay and right. all the George and Tammy stuff. But you start with a really good basic sound. So my I'm using a little Walter amp, which is a tube amp. And I'll turn everything off. So here's here's the thing. It's just real warm. It's real even. Let's check yeah. this out. No matter how you, high you get, it's still buttery, sure. smooth, like those old records to right. me. And uh, so I start with that, and then I add a little, like if I'm doing uh, one of Vince's records or George Strait or somebody that's real traditional. Yeah. And I start with this. I'll have a little verb and maybe a little delay. I'll set it for like, sure. like that. And then I like a little repeats. So, so, and then you play. So it's got a real traditional sound. Right. Okay. Now, this is what I take. I, this is, I got one more effect. And this is the Bernard effects? Uh, Bernardo. Bernardo. Uh, yeah. Effects pedal. And this is what he calls a steel dream. And it's just, I can take this and start there. Uh, let me say this with steel guitars. Uh, and it's a guitar. The only thing that makes it different uh, as far as hitting stomp boxes, uh, the only thing that makes it different is the pickups are wound. You know, depending on the brand of steel, but they're generally between 13,000 ohms and 20,000. So they hit the pedals too hard, generally. So you sometimes you have to tweak what you do, but but you can blend uh, the, the distortion here. I'll put a little bit on here. So it's just you know. So in the track, you know, it can sound like uh, you know, like a lot of guys do this. On, uh, you know, and then if I got to do something else, I'll grab, I've got every kind of stomp box there is. So I start with, with this distortion, the neutral drive, which is like a Zen drive. Yeah. Okay. And, and it gets me, you know, I'll turn it up a little bit, but it gets me distorted, but 
But when a guitar player, here's the tr trick. So when a guitar player is distorted, and you got a couple of those guys, this tends to sound clean. Right. Because the nature of the instrument, and I think it's because with 20,000 ohms or whatever, you hit these, these boxes, it, you know, and if you listen to it, there's a track uh, that I did with Megadeth, which is, I'm using three distortion pedals, and, and then I'm using uh, this, this delay, and um, I'll just show you what it, what it sounded like. So I get this, I get this sound. Hear that? Where it's like, and it, you can, if you want to, you could go. And mostly, it's, that's a little bit too much because if it's going to sustain, it builds up too much. But, but anyway, that's, I just wanted to take it to the extremes. Sure. So now you put distortion with it. You know, and, and it's got a, a, it still sounds like a steel, but, right. you know, you can get that in. And so on, the, uh, on Wanderlust uh, from the Risk album, Dan Huff wanted to put some Nashville flavor on the record. So he uh, talked Dave into accepting. A, he gave me a shot and it, and it made the record. So I was really tickled. But, um, but anyway, what you can do, and that's just like a guitar player would do. You know, if the producer says, hey, I want it more wacky than you put. And also I used a chorus on that same track and a, a little flange. So I've got, I'm running through, it's very processed, you know, sure. just for the, that, if you listen to that record and you can hear uh, what the steel does. And it's mostly, on the beginning, I think I'm just doing this. You know, while, while there's this groove going on and the guitars are doing these things, there's this this uh, bubbling up yeah. effect with steel. And then I do mostly slides up into the chorus, but, but not like country slides. So you don't really know if it's a whammy bar or, right. or whatever. And, and uh, so that's, that's the kind of uh, approach I take with a lot of this stuff is I, I look at the genre and, and see if it's uh, what's appropriate. You know, like Rusty Young was a great guy uh, as a, uh, a foundation back in with Poco. Sure. Uh, and, and he used to use a Leslie, you know, in that band and, and distortion. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. On steel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, cool. What is it? Picking up the pieces or something like that in the very first album. And uh, yeah, it was really great. And, and so I just look at that as a roadmap. You know, you start... You know, and you just keep on going until you find the, the magical thing that gets gains acceptance for the instrument. Or else they tell you to lay out, which that happens. <laughs> right. I probably laid off more hit records than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I noticed you don't have a tuner, and that seems like the most important part of any uh, steel player's rig. Yeah. Well, I actually do. I use a, a, my phone app, and it's, it's ClearTune is the app. Sure. Okay. And it's really accurate. Uh, there was a time, <laughs> I work a lot for Dan Huff, you know, which the legendary rock player and yeah. producer in Nashville. He, um, he didn't want any tuners. He kept on saying, guys, I just use a strobo flip or something, you know, something like that. It's a, a, a hard copy of it, but like the, and so anyway, I would tune like that and a couple other players were, were doing that. And, and then we proved, you know, that it matched up with the, the other stuff so it's like for what four bucks or whatever the app is right you got a great tuner and if you tune the way i do i don't tune every note to to the tuner i just tune the roots and then i tune the thirds fifths and all the ninths and whatever that that i need to the the band and also to the guitar player you know i think it's real important that you pay attention like because guitar players are always you know as the session's happening you're hearing guys playing you know whatever key it is and and i kind of just go and test myself and if i hear this notes flat to that guitar player then i i start messing with it and then i i get and you know it's like tuning to the overall center pitch of the band sure and which that's i got that from pete drake and and all the uh, you know when i started playing the greats like john huey yeah. all these are recording greats uh, they, but but like Roy Green, Weldon Marek, Buddy Emmons, they all tuned to the center of pitch in the band. Hmm. Yeah, there were no tuners back then. No, right. You know, if you look at the history of music, there were, 
you know. Oh, it's I, a, I, the Beatles didn't probably didn't have a tuner. Right, know? right. Uh, so, so you, you know, it's like musicians had to develop their ears more, and so that's kind of what I do. I start with the relative center of pitch from the tuner, and then I start amending. Independent. And some guitars, guitars like Vince and Tom Bukovac and different people like that play so well in tune, it's easy. Right. But there are other guitar players that, that uh, you know, maybe they need a fret job or whatever. And there's certain keys. <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's, sure. I, and to start putting them down, maybe their, their sound is like they got to play a guitar that's not easy to tune. Yeah. And if that's on the date, then I think I watch fiddle players. I watch any fretless instrument, which that's what this is, I watch those players adjust. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of the way I do it. Well, and you're adjusting with your bar the whole oh, time. And, yeah, it's I mean, a constant work of, of uh, intonation, you know, because really, basically, Weldon Mark had the best quote, quote, tune it any way you want to and play it in tune. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. it's, yeah, because it's like, that's really what you got to do. You yeah. develop your ear. Yeah. And, uh, you're never wrong to your left hand stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slide and commit to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So on, I bet on this on this album though that y'all just finished. This is pretty much your setup. Did you get? Did you vary from this at all? No, no, because you know what, uh, uh, we didn't want to replicate. You know, uh, you know, you can't, you know, repaint a Rembrandt yeah. or whatever. I always like to say that, but you you do want to stay within the genre, right? If you're doing old music, you know it's you're gonna do Chuck Berry. Make it sure you've got the the tones of Chuck Berry, right? Right. And you know don't don't depart very far. So I started stayed with this on those old records. They used to have uh, uh, reverb chambers and stuff like that, so I could use reverb. And then there was some Echoplex, you know, back in the '60s. Sure. So that wasn't a departure. So I just yeah. used a little delay, and uh, and I'll show you what I did. Like, so I used like this much reverb, uh, probably. Yeah. And then, oh, I've got some delay on. Excuse me. But then I'll set the repeat to the track. Uh, let me see. Say that's the speed of the the song. And then I cut it back to where you barely hear it because I, you don't want the delay to be sure. the thing you're hearing in a track, because that, you really didn't ha hear it that much. What the uh, steel players would use those echo plexes to, to richen yeah. the tone, So and that's what I did. Yeah, what I, what I loved about Bakersfield, that album so much, is that it was a really loving tribute, but you guys totally made it your own, and, yeah. and I think <laughs> brought it up a notch, you know, really made those songs shine, so. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I I think that that was our mission. Uh, um, that's what we wanted to do. We didn't want to, like I say, we didn't want to, you know, try to repaint those masterpieces. We just uh, wanted to bring, inject ourselves into it, you know, because we were influenced. We're oh. the generation that followed right. that, and we were influenced by those uh players as musicians and singers and so you know why not do that that's what they would do if they were coming after us sure you know and that's what they did uh, they came behind Lefty Frizzell and yeah. uh, the generation before them and Roy Acuff and all them and they they said hey let's make it our own and they were still cutting similar songs but like if you listen to Weary Blues on this record which is uh, one of my favorite cuts. I, I don't know that song. Okay, Weary Blues is uh, Hank Williams' composition. Okay. Okay, but but Vince starts singing on this, you know, when we're just messing around and it's got a bluegrass feel and it's like, it just goes into this whole thing that doesn't sound like Hank Williams and it doesn't sound like Ray Price. It's just kind of our own thing and it's it's uh, got a bluegrass element to it. Cool. But it's still got electric instruments, you know, and, and uh, you know, I did a... a I can't remember what I played on it. I played low strings instead of playing the traditional yeah, high, high, and stuff, high thing, yeah. and, and, it, and it really works. But um, yeah, it's a lot of fun to oh, do that. Oh yeah, I can't wait you to know? hear it. Well, just, uh, okay, some, some gear nerdy stuff. Are you still using the D-Dario uh, NY strings? Yes, on? I am. I, I can't, I've, I've looked, can't find anything better. God, they last yeah. forever. Yeah, I like it, yeah. yeah. 
And if yeah. you're cheap like I am, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, that's the thing I always tell guys, especially because you know, not everybody can change their strings. No, I change mine every week, but but uh, if you can't, if I was going to choose a string, they also will go about a month before they break. Yeah. So so you've got a string that's going to last. It will always sound like a new string, and you know. And the only way you could tell, like I, I tested uh, a batch one time. I just wanted to see how long they'd last and with the steel constantly bending and the right. strings. And, uh, and they lasted about a month before it was hard to tune them. But they never lost their sound. It's still huh. sustained. And, right. Yeah, so. Yeah, they nailed yeah. it. Yeah, I think they did. And what's, uh, what bar are you using? Uh, it's a, a BJS. It's, it's just a... A guy has been making these for probably 40 years, huh. and it's a chrome bar, and uh, I use a 12-string thing. Let me just, for the students of steel guitar, if you're starting out, look at the length of your finger. You know, see, the bar has to sit like that. If it sits like here, you've got, you don't have control. So you'll see guys playing, and they got the and you'll see the bar wiggling. There's no way you can get in tune. What, you'll, what they do is they'll go up the fret, and the, the back of the bar goes here, well, uh, you know, maybe sharp of the fret. And when that happens, even if you correct it, what the listener hears that first note sure. being out of tune. And, you know, there's no compensating for that. So if you get your bar, I use it because of the length of my fingers. I, it's a 12-string bar. And I don't know who thought of it. I don't know why they named them. Steel started out as eight strings, pedal steels did. And then they went to nine and they went to 10. And so they started making bars to accommodate the string, string length. So they named them 10 string bars huh. and, and 12 string bars. But they never should have been, um, in my opinion, they should just always like go to the length of your, your finger so that it sits. See, when I move, it goes exactly to the fret. The bar doesn't move, and you can you can also pick it up when it's that. Sure. You know, it's cupped right there. By the way, I uh, I got your course, and gosh, it was great, man. Thank you. It just made if y'all check it out. It's it's a if you're a steel player, it'll totally make you retool. You rethink <laughs> the whole. It was it was great. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Dave Ristrom, uh, who is uh, Luke Bryan's steel player. Oh yeah, player, he's told great. Me. Yeah, he's a great player. We said you got to do it. So yeah. Oh well, good. Yeah. So we all did it. So well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was glad to get to do that because uh, um, what happened was Modern Music Masters approached me about teaching, and I said I don't want to teach, you know. And, Sure. And they said, well, just do us a favor. Just go look online and, dis and see if you can learn to play from what's available, the way you play. <laughs> yeah. and, and just like the little tip I just gave you right, right. there, nobody teaches that. No, no. And, and, you know, as far as the blocking and, and the fact that when you first start playing, you should play. The volume pedal should be learned because it's all you're building muscle memory. But you've got guys out there saying, hey, just leave your foot off the volume pedal. Well, it doesn't sound emotional. Right. You know, but if you, John Huey, every note he hits, the volume pedal's doing it. But that's got to get in your muscle memory. As you hear those notes, you're. Your foot does that without thinking. Right. Boy, that guy could make it cry. Oh, right? could he ever? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I'm a huge fan and can't wait for the new album. Well, I hope you like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Till next time. If you want to see
like the record. Yeah. <laughs>